0: This wonderful worship that leads us right into God's presence. I'm just going to read from John chapter 20 and from verse 10. And we read that then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, Why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, If you have carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my Father and your Father. To my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Let's pray. Father, we pray on this Easter Sunday morning. That as Mary met with the risen Jesus in his glory. That we might meet with you now. And as her desire was to go and to witness and to live for Jesus from that moment on. May that today be our desire too. In Jesus' name. Amen. Now I just want to preface what I'm going to say here at the beginning by making it clear, if you don't already know, that I love Easter eggs. Anything related to chocolate or sweets, count me in. Of course, I I don't get as many Easter eggs now as I I once did, which actually isn't for once a disguised plea for more, because buying eggs time is over, and with my more, shall we put it, mature physique, my time for eating more than one Easter egg is over as well, I think. Neither, though, do I, I, think, get as much fun out of eating Easter eggs as I used to at times do. For example, as a child, both myself and my younger brother, we both shared a, a love of Easter eggs. We had, though, a slightly different style, a slightly different approach to eating them. He just ate them as quickly as he was allowed to. I wasn't far behind him, but I was a little bit more measured than him. And how I used to love eating my last egg. When he didn't have any. All <laughs> oh, that old sinful nature. I would never dream of course of doing that now. Or well, maybe maybe for a little while, but I think I would probably give I could give him a bit then. But anyway. But despite my, my love for Easter eggs, I would have to say that they are, I think, a sadly fitting symbol of the modern Easter because they are gaudy, they've got all the shiny paper and glitter but there's usually not really that much behind the shiny paper. They are sweet and they are for an instant so satisfying but we know that long term they don't do anything for your health, your well-being or your waistline. Isn't that by and large what the the modern Easter is for so many people in our society today. Isn't it just a show that doesn't really mean that much anymore? So the question I want to, to ask this morning then is, is there more to Easter than this? Is Easter just a quaint celebration of an irrelevant piece of history or even of a myth? Or is there more to it than this? Do Christians have something to say at Easter, something unique to offer? Are Christians just deluded themselves and trying to delude others? Or is there a truth, a truth basis to Easter that this world needs to hear and that as Christians, as the church, we're obligated to share? Well, I believe that there is. So I'm going to try and answer some of these Easter questions this morning by looking at two significant characters from the Easter story. And you know, just how necessary this is was underlined for me this week by a survey that was printed in the Telegraph. And that is, it must be true of course because it was in the Telegraph, and that is that that nearly 25% of people who identify as Christians do not believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Now I think a slightly more encouraging figure is that among Christians who regularly go to church, 57% believe completely in the resurrection. Now interestingly, 9% of non-religious people believe in the resurrection. Does all that confuse you? I'll tell you, it certainly confuses me. So there are questions then that need to be answered. There's thinking that needs at least to be challenged. So let's begin then by looking at Jesus. I mean, where else can we begin? And let's just ask two questions of Jesus to see if the resurrection is believable, to see if we can just begin to understand it better. So first then, can we believe it? Can we really believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead? Well, let me just make a start by saying that there is absolutely no doubt that Jesus Christ lived and was crucified. Only a very tiny minority from the lunatic fringe of atheism would even attempt to cast doubt on that. Because this is just so well documented in the historical record. And not only by Christians, but by people who are antagonistic to Christianity. As to be beyond any doubt. In fact, and I've said this before, but never stops me repeating myself, there is far more evidence that Jesus Christ lived than there is that Julius Caesar lived. Nobody doubts Julius Caesar, so why doubt Jesus? But what about the fact that he rose again? Can we really believe this? Can we? Well, let's think about the alternatives. And there are really two main ones. First, that the, the Jews... Or the Romans stole the body of Jesus. Or that it was stolen by the disciples of Jesus. Let's begin then with the first one. The Jews or the Romans stole his body. Now initially that that really does sound quite plausible. That they hated Jesus just so much that they wanted to pile even further indignities on his already broken body. But wait a minute. During his ministry, Jesus had hinted, and actually at times done a little more than hint, that he would rise from the dead. And the Jews knew this. This is one of the claims of Jesus that had infuriated them. So why would they then do something that would make it seem to others that Jesus has actually done as he claimed he would? And even if, say, they are the Romans, had lost their cool when they did this, you know, that they just got carried away in a a frenzy of hatred and of anger and, and lost sight for that moment of the consequences. Yet though, when they saw the effect of this, that their taking of the body of Jesus was then leading to the one thing that they didn't want to happen, to an upsurge in faith in Jesus, well, don't you think that they would have done something about this? That no matter how broken or how disfigured his body was, that still that they would have had the body of Jesus taken out and put on public display. That they would have shouted it from the very rooftops. You've got it all wrong. Your Lord has not risen. He has not conquered death. No see, death has conquered him. But they didn't do this because they couldn't because they did not have the body of Jesus. So then maybe the disciples of Jesus stole his body away. Well, apart from the fact that this would have been incredibly difficult, guarded as his body was by by Roman soldiers with a huge stone blocking the only way in or out. Apart from this, the question here has to be asked and answered these first disciples suffered tremendously. Many of them died, became martyrs... ...precisely because of the faith that they proclaimed in the risen Jesus Christ. Well, would they have been willing to suffer and die... ...for something that they knew to be a lie? It just doesn't make sense. But some here have suggested, well... You know, maybe they just kind of hallucinated. Maybe that's what happened. You know, that they so wanted Jesus to rise from the dead, that they got so worked up mentally and emotionally that they managed to convince themselves that this had actually happened. Well, apart from the fact that this still begs the question, why this being the case, didn't the Jews and the Romans produce the body and so destroy this delusion? But apart from this, The frame of mind that the Bible shows the disciples were in after the crucifixion, which isn't complimentary, and which I don't think we could ever imagine them or anyone else wanting to make up, this doesn't lend itself to this theory. For example, John 20.19 tells us that they were in an upper room, hiding, trembling for fear of the Jews. Who would make that up about themselves? But you see, this kind of frame of mind is certainly not conducive to hallucinations. Modern psychiatry, those who studied this, tell us that hallucinations are born more out of group hysteria and never of gloom and despair. As one writer in the New Testament, George Eldon Ladd, as he puts it, he says, puts it like this: visions require a certain conditioning to be experienced. These conditions did not prevail. Faith did not create the appearances. The appearances created faith. So you see, the answer to that first question, can you believe it, is, is that there really is no other real possible alternative if you actually take time to look At the evidence now, I could list quotes here to to back this up, but let me assure you that that down through history, some of the the finest legal minds in the world have looked at this evidence, and time and time and time again, they have come to the same conclusion that nothing else explains the resurrection account other than that Jesus Christ did indeed rise from the dead. Let me though just give you one. Uh, blanket quote from T.C. Harmon. This is what he says. On numerous occasions, those who have set out critically to examine and disprove the actuality of the resurrection have been forced to abandon the attempt and in some cases have been converted to Christ through the invulnerability of the evidence let's move on then to ask another question our second question of the resurrection of Jesus that is, does it really matter does it matter that Jesus Christ rose from the grave, what difference does it make well let me here begin by saying this to you that out of all the world faiths Christianity is unique in among other things In the continuity that Christianity sees between this physical world, this physical body, and the spiritual world. Almost every, in fact, I would say every other faith, sees there being a radical separation between the two. Only Christianity speaks in terms of continuity. Continuity between the physical and the spiritual with the spiritual, with Jesus Christ, and integral to this, the resurrection of Jesus Christ being the bridge that links these two. So you see then, the resurrection of Jesus tells me that one day God is going to recreate this weak, frail, sin-blemished person, body of mine. It tells me that one day God is going to recreate this sin-scarred world that we live in. And all in a perfect and a far more wonderful way than either I or you can ever imagine. Now you see, for me, that makes sense. For I just cannot see why God made this world, why God made us as we are, physical, flesh and blood, human beings, if all that really matters is the spiritual life of heaven to come. But let me here just highlight some of the implications that this, that the resurrection, actually has for the life to come and for our life on this earth now that I fear too often in the church of today we, we're maybe misinformed about or we get confused about. And that is first, that the common perception too often seems to be that, that when we die, we go to heaven. And at the final resurrection, when at the second coming, all will be raised from the dead, well, that's when all God's people will be united together with him in heaven. That's the common perception. Now, what this can then breed is, is a sense that it's the spiritual alone that really matters. That our our physical existence, that, that our bodies in fact, are at best to be viewed with suspicion. And that this created world, well you know, it's not something that as Christians we should really worry all that much about. As what really matters for us, is heaven. That's what we should be focused on. Our final and ultimate destiny. Now what I want to suggest to you, is that within that that position we find a mixture of truths, half-truths and at times I would suggest unright, untruths that have got a lot more to do at times with the influence of this world's philosophies on Christianity than an actual true biblical Christianity itself. You see, what the Bible actually seems to teach is that paradise, that heaven is a place of joy, of rest, of refreshment until the day of resurrection. When then with our new transformed bodies we will take our place in and we will enjoy a new and recreated heaven and earth. Just listen to what Revelation 21 says of that day. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea, any separation. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride dress for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. And you see this does have implications for our life in this world. In the here and now. Our life on this earth. For in creation... Mankind was called to steward God's world. We were called to to take responsibility for this world and all the creatures that are in it, to look after it, to care for it. And at the resurrection, this world, I believe, is not going to be done away with. It's not going to be obliterated. No, it's going to be recreated. And so our responsibility for it then it's underlined. So you see the attitude that you sometimes seem to find among some Christians. That this world doesn't really matter to God. For one day this material world is basically going to be kind of ripped up and thrown away. So it needn't really matter to us. We need not bother about things like the environment. We can exploit and abuse this physical world which one day is going to be no more. That kind of thinking and understanding and attitude is, I think, (coughs) profoundly unbiblical. It is unbiblical. I mean, what does the Lord's Prayer actually say? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, a fascinating book that's got a fair bit of say on this subject, I don't agree with all of it, but it's a fantastic book, is Surprised by Hope by Tom Wright, formerly the Bishop of St Andrews now, A professor at St. Andrews, but it's a a great book, easy to read, I think. So the resurrection of Jesus then does matter because it makes sense of this world we live in. But far more than that. The resurrection matters because it makes sense of Jesus, of the totality of who Jesus is. I mean, Jesus said Mark 10, 45. That as the Son of Man, He came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. That He did on the cross, when as the sinless Son of God, He died in our place. He paid the penalty of our sin. But you see, Jesus also said, Mark 10.34, that three days later, he would rise again. And he also said, as I've touched on already, that at the end of time, he would return to this earth to take his people to himself. Mark 13.26, at that time, men will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And you see, the church, on account of all this, on account of Christ's resurrection from the dead, and his death on the cross the church taught that Jesus Christ is Lord Lord over sin Lord over Satan Lord over death Jesus Christ is the one who alone through him men can be saved Romans 10 verse 9 if you confess with your lips that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead you will be saved But you see, if Jesus is lying dead in a Jerusalem tomb, then he didn't defeat sin, Satan, and death. He didn't keep his word. He isn't coming again. He isn't Lord. That's how much the resurrection of Jesus Christ matters. And that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 14, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. Verse 19, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But he isn't lying in that took. He isn't. Not all the evidence points towards that conclusion that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Let me hear just a quote from Tom Wright out of that book that I mentioned earlier. This is what he says. He says, historical evidence or argument alone cannot force anyone to believe that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. But historical argument is remarkably good at clearing away the undergrowth behind which scepticisms of various sorts have long been hiding. The proposal that Jesus was bodily raised from the dead, possesses unrivaled power to explain the historical data at the heart of early Christianity. Have you got that? There is a faith dimension to Christianity. There is a faith dimension to the resurrection, to belief in the resurrection. Of course there is. There has to be with something so unique, something so stupendous that happened now over 2,000 years ago. Let me say this to you. Putting aside all prejudices and all skepticism, the historical evidence surrounding the resurrection drives you towards the conclusion that Jesus did indeed rise from the dead any other conclusion is far, far harder to believe. In fact, I'll say to you, it takes a much greater leap of faith to believe that Jesus didn't rise from the dead than to believe he did. Well, the other person I want as much more briefly to consider just now is, is Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene, a woman of doubtful uh, early pedigree and character. The legend has it that prior to meeting Christ she was a a prostitute and certainly in Luke 8 verse 2 we're told that that Jesus cast seven demons from her that that number seven, that perfection showing just how completely she was in Satan's power so why then, after he had risen did Jesus choose to reveal himself to this particular woman in fact, why choose to reveal himself to any woman why choose, as he did, to make women the principal witnesses of the resurrection? Because, you see, the position is, in first century society, that women weren't regarded as credible witness Witnesses, which, incidentally, underlines for me, again, the authenticity of the New Testament and, certainly, of the resurrection account. Because, you see, if this was a story that someone then had made up, rather than an account of what had actually happened, then women would never have been included in it as principal witnesses of the resurrection. No first century writer, no first century man, knowing how other men would be likely to react, would ever voluntarily choose to make this part of their account. And certainly, their account would not have included This particular woman, Mary Magdalene. Not only a woman, but a woman of dubious character. A woman with a past history of immorality. So why then did Jesus choose to reveal himself to her? Why didn't he instead choose someone special or at least someone respectable? Why? Well, precisely because, as was the case throughout his ministry, because while the love and the power of Jesus Christ are open to all, yet the people who Jesus especially reaches out to are the poor, the needy, the weak, and the hurting. It's those whose hearts are broken, those who are wounded by this cruel sinful world these are the people whose lives Jesus wants to work in and to transform so this Easter I want to tell you again and I want to tell you loud and clear that he has risen and that he wants to work in your life for maybe you're here today and you're wounded. And you're hurting. Maybe you've made some bad decisions in your life. Maybe in the fairly recent past. And you've done things that you know are wrong and sinful. And so you know that you need forgiveness. And you wish with all your heart that you could have another chance. That you could have a second chance in life. A new beginning. Well let me tell you now. Right now. Jesus Christ Christ. Is able, And he wants to do things in your life that no one, nothing else, can do. Things that perhaps you think are impossible. He can do. He can heal your hurting heart. He can take away the pain of memories that perhaps bind you. He can give you forgiveness and enable you to forgive. He can give you a new heart, a fresh start. A second chance. He can do all that. If only you by faith. Open your life to him. Easter power. Easter love. Easter resurrection. Are today only one prayer of faith in Christ away. So I urge you. Reach out. To that risen Jesus now. Let's come prayer. Father, we just want to thank you for your grace that is here and present, for your forgiveness, for your power, your glory, your love, for all that you are in Jesus. And you're here today. You're here with us. And on this Easter day, you want to give us that fresh start, that new beginning. If we don't yet know you, you want us to come to know newness of life in Jesus Christ. Lord, help us by confessing our sin, by putting our faith in your death on the cross for that sin. Help us by our faith in Jesus Christ as Lord over sin and death and hell. Help us to find in you the love and the power that we need to begin to live those transformed lives. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.